look at the book of Acts, particularly Acts 1 through 7, and take notes of what the disciples did. And then say, does my Christianity look like this? If it doesn't, how can it begin to look like this? When was the last time I baptized somebody? Now, I know folks might get upset, right? But when was the last time I baptized somebody? When was the last time I cast demons out of somebody? When was the last time I prayed for healing for someone? When was the last time I testified at work? to the goodness of God. When was the last time? Like, if we're not doing those things, what are, what are we doing? Right? And so I think, I, I like to say, if we ran our personal lives and our small groups or beta groups or life groups or cell groups, whatever you want to call them, through an axe filter, would we come out looking like followers of Jesus from the scriptures? And if we're not, then we might want to reconsider the kind of trees that we are so that we might bear fruit. I woke up with sin on my mind I don't want to do it this time I'm fading a little too fast Welcome to the year of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2019. Can I say this at church is still here? Because churches are still here, and I still have things that I want to say, and you have things that hopefully you want to say, and I need you to tell me what those things are. If there's anything, any topic, anything that you would like to hear covered, a conversation that you would love to hear, a guest that you would love to hear, please shoot me an email. Go to the website, church.com and... Hit the leave feedback button there and get in touch with me. Let me know who those people are, what you want to hear, why you want to hear it. Shoot, if you have something to say, maybe you'll come on. Let's do this together. If you have not yet done this, please make it your New Year's resolution to take the 27 seconds that it takes and review the show on iTunes or Podbean or wherever you downloaded this show. And if you can't do that, tell a friend about the show. Share it to them. The more voices, the better. So you probably, over the course of the holidays, hopefully were able to avoid the arguments that we see on Facebook and on Twitter and online and on the news and on MSNBC and Fox News about things like, you know, America's a Christian nation and all people are created equal and we're the land of the free and the home of the brave and we're the best thing happening since sliced bread and we invented the Bible, which that's that's a bit hyperbolic, but you get where I'm going with that. None of that's true. There's so much of our history, specifically the history of America and how the church is interwoven and the part that religion and politics have played as those two have become embedded together and synonymous sometimes with each other. And by the way, that's not a, an attack on the GOP and it's not an attack on the Democrats either. It, both sides are equally culpable. And so Jonathan Walton has written a book called 12 Lies That Hold America Captive. And so I had him come on and we discussed that a bit. I do want to give you a little bit of warning. Because life is the way that it is, uh, this was recorded with Jonathan sitting in a Starbucks, and so you're going to hear people scraping food and a little bit of doors opening and closing. And to be honest, the content is good enough that that doesn't matter. And you'll find it about five minutes in, you'll forget that those people are even there. I'm honestly glad that other people sitting could hear him talking the way that he was talking about the church and really things that matter. And so I really hope that you love this episode. I really hope that you'll get this book. 
I believe that it has um, the ability to open your eyes. I know it certainly opened my eyes and I had to read it in small chunks because I found myself getting infuriated, not because I didn't know things, but because I didn't know that I didn't know things. And I've since then gone off the rabbit hole a bit with American history and I've loved every minute of it. I still get upset often about it, but that's okay. That is life. And so here we go. 12 lies that hold America captive. And most importantly, the truth that sets us free with Jonathan Walton. Jonathan Walton. So, first off, man, welcome to the show. Thank you for making time in the middle of Pennsylvania. And for those listening, you're going to see, or you're going to hear, you won't see anybody. Um, you're going to hear random people in the back maybe ordering an espresso or whatever they need at Starbucks, a nice scone. Uh, but either way, so bear with a little bit of background noise. But Jonathan, man, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely, man. I'm glad I could be a part of your podcast. I enjoy it. I'm really glad I've been able to listen to the last few episodes. Oh, really? I re- I, yeah, I probably listened to about 10 episodes so far. I really like the Brueggemann episode. Really like the, um, the Kathy Kong episode. Really like another episode that you did. With, oh, my favorite one by far, Brian McLaren. Brian's fantastic. Brian's like fantastic. that one is great. Anyway. Yeah, people should listen to your podcast, not just... I agree. Before we get into uh, the topic at hand of your book that... Uh, it's out in January, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, people could get it before Christmas, actually. Really? If, if they pre-order it off IB Press, they can get it the second week of December. Nice. So tell me a bit about yourself. So I know we talked about it a little bit via email, but what's kind of your upbringing? I know you're from south central virginia kind of kind of south of richmond and when i read the little bit of where you were from i I googled i'm like i know right where that is i didn't know the name where it was until i saw where it was geographically and i was like okay but what is a little bit of you man you're yeah well i mean i grew up i I was born in alexandria actually Mm -hmm. Uh, but before i could you know benefit from some of the best schools in the united states and stuff like that we moved back to where my mom grew up, which is in Broadnax, Virginia. So before, when I was one, I know how old our house is because it's the same age as I am, you know? So <laughs> <laughs> we moved when I was one back to Broadnax. Towns probably has, you know, 327 people at the highest. And yeah, that's where I was from. That's where I'm from. Never left Southern Virginia until I came to Columbia to visit Yeah, um, and changed, changed everything, you yeah. know, to go from rural rural like the epitome of rural america where nothing is there to new york city that's supposedly the center of everything was a yeah that's kind of like my life these stark contrasts yeah in a lot of ways yeah so what was that what was growing up were you christian growing up <laughs> i think that's in the con i that question the answer to that question changes the more i learn about jesus <laughs> okay we'll, think- we'll say quotes yeah, yeah. So Ruby Bridges talks about like black folk religion, uh, which I think has elements of Christianity in it. And I think has elements of Jesus in it. 
And there are people who grew up like how I grew up going to church every Sunday and Wednesday and cleaning the church and going to revivals and all that stuff who do, um, Ken Shigematsu talks about like doing lots of Christian things, but mm-hmm. never actually participating in the redemptive work of God. And so I would say I was that until I had an encounter with God during a mo- I had a motorcycle accident when I was 16 where I didn't get injured. I jumped the intersection on Harley Davidson in Virginia. That was on purpose or that was on accident? That was definitely not on purpose. (laughs) And then I think I realized, oh, like God is trying to tell me something. Now I still was, you know, looking at porn and still running after women and still doing all the things that I thought were perfectly fine and doing and be a Christian. But I knew that Jesus wanted to say something to me. So I started writing and writing poetry really became how I interacted with God in the Psalms. Mm -hmm. And so that really became how I interacted with him. But I wouldn't say I had a relationship with Jesus where I was submitted to him as Lord and Savior in that way until I was 19 yeah. in, in university at Columbia. So what was the big, what was the big shift there? So you, was it just being outside of your comfort zone and having to find something else? Or was it like, here we go. Cause I know for me, you know, I left uh, Southwest Texas and went to Liberty and really the only culture shock for me was everything isn't called Coke here. I'm, I'm, you know, I grew up and I'll have a Coke yeah. and they ask you what kind. I got a little pissed the first time that yeah, I say, yeah, can yeah. I have a Coke and didn't realize. And then they brought me a Coke and I don't like Coke. Um, and so what was it? Was it just <laughs> culture shock or was it just a different church? What, what was the change? Well, I think the change was that I actually had to rely on God as opposed to how talented I was or anything like that. So I don't remember what chapter this is in the book because it's long, but I talk about like how I started out at Columbia and was basically managing my stress and anxiety with porn, overeating and working out. Mm -hmm. Like those three things. I feel guilty about watching porn. So I stop and then I overeat because like, that's what I did to stress eat. And I feel guilty about that. So I go work out and I get injured. Right. So there's just like terrible, Mm -hmm cycle there and long story short ended up having an encounter with god where i took a job that was shouldn't have taken it they offered me money to do it an apartment in brooklyn like that whole that whole deal and essentially went home one day and my apartment was locked because the apartment had been repossessed and then i found out that the money that the guy had paid me those checks had bounced Mm. so i was i paid bills for my mom and bought clothes for my job and all of a sudden I have no money in the middle of New York City and I want to say that I went to Jesus but I didn't like I went to not Bible Gateway but like Pornhub.com right Mm -hmm. and obviously like after gratifying yourself in that way that doesn't solve any problems Mm -hmm. it just creates another problem (laughs) and you you feel terrible Um, and so I was like God I don't want to do this anymore called my intervarsity staff worker at the time and just told him, I was like, yo, man, like I'm pretending like I am. I've been doing this church thing because I was a talented kid. And when you're talented in a black church, you get put up front. It doesn't really matter mm-hmm. what your life is like with Jesus. And um, that facade kind of fell away. And I was finally able to hear that Jesus loved me absent of my efforts for him, my performance for him. He didn't want an employee or a soldier or um, a worker, but he wanted me as his child. That was the first time I'd ever been invited into that. And yeah. so that's when yeah. I would say like me and Jesus actually became. And that's uh, awesome. Child, so yeah. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And, and can I say, that's rare that someone will openly say all that, specifically the pornography and that type of stuff. I feel like a lot of people still sweep that under the rug. And we're all, we're all lying. <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, uh, I forget what the song is. One of my favorite artists is Propaganda. And he's got a song of that. I forget what it is. But he basically talks, you know, this, this, that, and the other. Forgive me. I'm lying. You know, like a strand of gnats. I'm still lying. Like, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm lying, and so yeah. are you. <laughs> prop, prop, great man. I love, yeah, I love his stuff. Um, so the book that you wrote, Twelve Lies That Hold America Captive. Mm-hmm. I can't. Are you? That title is controversial, just in and of itself. At least, at least to the circles that I feel like stay on the outside fringes of this show and or central Virginia where where I am now or Texas where I'm from and you begin your book um, and I find it coincidence I I didn't realize that we would be talking on on election night or or the the midterm elections but you begin your book with just a you just hope and and hope for the future and hope for the church and hope for America to do things better because Barack Obama was was elected and and I would like you to kind of roll through some of that, ending up at what you call WAFR, um, White America Folk Religion, which now that you talked about Black Folk Religion, I'm not familiar with that either. Um, but I, I shared right. I shared that acronym with a friend of mine that lives in Charlottesville, and he's like, yes, somebody gets it. Here we go. Somebody gets it. <laughs> so talk to me a yeah. bit about that hope yep. and why, and then what... What destroyed it, or not destroyed, but what what changed it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, so I think there's a to the Krista Tippett on being. She did a podcast with Ruby Bridges and another civil rights leader, and they they brought up this concept of black folk religion, and I I still have work to do within myself to figure out what the tenets of black folk religion are, because that I think would involve me actually diving into my genogram like what did my family worship how did that mm-hmm. like from 16 19 to, you know to next year like over the last 400 years what were we being invited into but not just invited into but what have we tried to make into our own version of the gospel when it was illegal for us to read it was under white supervision and it's not an ethnic specific church but a racially segregated church where the gospel grows in a different way right mm-hmm. Um, and so I still have some work to do around that. I think what I began to understand more, though, was not necessarily what I gave up, but what I was invited into, which is white American folk religion. Mm-hmm. I remember getting an email from one of the editors and he said, you know, where does this term come from? Like, where'd you get it? Like, who came up with it? Like, and trying to substantiate. And I was like, well, no, I, like, I made it up. Because I, I see it at work in my own life. Mm-hmm. And so if we look at, if we think about a race, class, gender-based hierarchy and the worship of militarism, racism, uh, and uh, Martin Luther King talked about this and then Rich Viotis added, Rich Viotis is the pastor of New Life Fellowship, added another one where we have materialism, racism, militarism. And if you add sexuality, that's what you get before us today. Where like, if you, if we take literally the if you analyze like the the invitation of the quote-unquote people who framed the constitution as nation and if we you know take the same 
idea of like who is in the room, who is this for, what was the author's intent, who's the impacted. Like you kind of have two options. We could take the hopeful stance and say like, well, maybe they were writing with the intention of one day including everyone in all these aspirational goals. Or you could take the stance of like integrity, like what did, how did they actually live live their lives? Mm-hmm. Because these weren't people absent of power. These were people who had power. So what did they do with it? even with the goals and aspirations that they had. Because these weren't people who couldn't exact their will upon the world. These are people who were enacting their will upon the world. So what did they will the world to look like? And so I think that first chapter really draws a picture of like, I came, I graduated when Barack Obama became president and I had a daughter when Donald Trump got elected. And the way that that completely changed and like, um, what did it mean for me to be black in America? What does it mean for me not to be black in the kingdom of God because race doesn't exist in heaven? So there are no black people in heaven, there are no white people in heaven, there's ethnos in heaven, but I don't know who my people are. So God, what does that mean mm-hmm. to hang out in this now and not yet place? I must need to be discipled out of something so that I can actually know what it's like to be loved by you in the fullness of who I am, even though I don't know what that ethnic identity is because it was taken from somewhere a while back, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And so I think coming up with a term for what I believe the idol that I was invited into, and not just me, but all all people in America are being invited into because the vision that's cast by Jefferson and Hamilton and all these people is literally another God. It's literally another faith. It's literally another way of life because if faith is the subject of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, we will never see the American dream, yet we believe in it all the time. We do not have time to talk about all 12 lies. And I'm not, I still haven't decided which two or three I really want to hone in on. But I will, I will <laughs> yeah. tell everyone listening, all 12 lies literally. So I, something, Jonathan, I couldn't do. I wasn't able to, like I've read other books and I've been able to read it in like a day, day and a half. Sometimes like, like Kathy, uh, you talked about Kathy Kong uh, earlier. Yeah. Like I read that book in two hours. It was beautiful. It was, great. It was hard. Yeah. And it was, it was just amazing. But other books, like I literally have to sit with because they either piss me off or I'm not ready for that. Like The Eternal Current was one. Uh, Alexander Shia's stuff was one. Um, Austin Fisher's Faith in the Shadows yeah, was one. Absolutely. Like, like I just, I had to read it and then I needed to back away for a minute. And, and each of these lies was that way. Um, I do know, so... What I wasn't expecting, being with your background and, and the little bit I knew about you from from the Google, um, is I wasn't expecting to get as much history as I got in it. But um, I really appreciated that. I like the way that you weaved in the context of both Native Americans as well as anyone else that doesn't happen to be white. Because uh, I feel like I got like the Dawes Act. I'd never heard of that. Like, and I think like I remember. I'm pretty sure I put it on Facebook and tagged you to it. Like, like I was actually pissed that I'd never heard of the Dawes Act until I read about it in your book. And then I Google it, and the more that I Google and I go down the little rabbit hole, I'm just so angry. Like, just so angry. And so, as people are reading this, before we dive into some of these lies, what do I do with that anger? Um, Because sometimes I'm still angry. Like I read a little bit tonight, um, specifically what you were just referencing with the different uh, races, creeds, genders, and the different view um, from Revelation on this is who's in the kingdom of God and here's how we categorize people and we're doing it wrong, you and I right now. Here's how we should Mm -hmm. do it. But I don't know how to sit with that anger. Like I just don't know how to sit with it. 
Yeah. So I wish that I could, I had written the book that I'm writing now before I wrote this. Mm -hmm. What I'm working on right now is um, the emotionally healthy activist, Mm -hmm. uh, taking a lot of Pete Scazzaro's emotionally healthy leader stuff. And with his blessing, like creating, like how do we deal using the skills that he brings up, like incarnational listening, like writing ourselves in the scripture, like entering into pain and suffering with Jesus at the center and make that a systemic thing, not just a personal or relational thing. Mm-hmm. We're actually going to have a course for eight weeks, going to be live streamed for March and April, specifically because people don't know what to do when they're pissed off. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I take it I'm not the only one that said that then. No, no. And I mean, people are going to be angry tonight, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever happens. And I think there's, um, there's a couple things that are helpful. One is that anger is a good thing. Like our emotions are not bad. Like there's signals for what God is doing and like what we're passionate about. So being angry is okay. Um, I was told that anger was bad, so I stopped it. But if we if we cut off, like we can't bifurcate our hearts. So if we don't allow ourselves to be angry, we don't actually allow ourselves to experience joy either. So our emotional spectrum becomes really, really short, uh, which doesn't allow us to enter into the holy discontent of God. So I think that the anger that we're being invited into, it will lead to holy discontent. So there's a, there's a constructive dissonance that happens when we get angry if we bring it to God. So break that down a bit. When you say holy discontent, yes. what, does that, what does that mean? Yes. Yeah, so holy discontent would be um, the way that we define it. There's a, lots of definitions out there, but specifically in InterVarsity in New York and New Jersey, we have a holy discontent initiative where we say, like, what does it look like to enter into the lament of the world and the longing for the kingdom? So if you're going to lament, you actually have to allow yourself to be uncomfortable. Because mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a direct line between not just spiritual maturity and emotional health, but there's also direct lines between our level of holy discontent and our emotional health. Because if we can't get angry, we cannot lament. Right. If we're not willing to, to engage with the suffering and the pain and the struggle, we can't lament. And if we don't know how terrible the world is and how terrible brokenness and violence and sinfulness is, then we don't actually know or can enter into how beautiful the gospel is, how wonderful redemption is, how amazing the prospect of the renewal of all things just by virtue of the, the will of God and our entering into that because of Jesus. And we can get the full breadth of like lamenting the suffering in the world and longing for his kingdom to come in full. And we get this beautiful dissonance that I think is captured in the cross where there is deep brokenness and at the exact same time, the transformative power happening simultaneously. And that's what's happening when we get angry. Yeah, We're actually entering into the frustrating heart of God. And that anger, I think we can turn into constructive dissonance that drives us to seek justice in a way that makes space for the pain of people that we're going to enter into. If you were to concisely tell me what white American folk religion is, and by concisely, like, you know, the Baptists would have the Baptist faith and message, or the Evangelical Covenant Church would say this, or the Catholics would say this, or the Jesuits would say right. that, like, what is, if we're going to call, if we're going to make it, um, as you kind of, you kind of make it its own denomination in the book of lumping in yes. this type of Protestantism is not mm-hmm. separate. It's It's this. It doesn't really matter what brand you put on top of it. Pepsi yeah, yeah, is yeah. Pepsi is Pepsi. It doesn't really matter it's what label Pepsi. we put on this. So if, <laughs> right, if you right. were to concisely put it down, what is what is white America folk religion yep. in, in general? 
out of Ephesians 2, we talk about the spirit of the age and the prince of the power of the air. So this is a spiritual thing, right? Mm-hmm. So we have white, which is a race, class, gender-based hierarchy, right? White, American, it's tied to a place. It's tied to a, a locale, a geography. And then folk, ba- basically being like um, we are taking a, a genuine faith and co-opting it in such a way um, that we, it can pass as the faith itself, even though it's been changed drastically. And then religion is a certain set of agreed upon practices that everyone involved says, this is this is what it means to be a good one, right? Mm-hmm. So the way that that would play out, it's like there are lots of people, whatever your skin color is, that are pursuing white American religion. Mm-hmm. When we say, I am going to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, it is impossible to pursue life, liberty, and happiness and take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow you. They are completely antithetical to each other. My mother used to tell me, joy comes in the morning and I, the morning's not in the a.m. Cause when you wake up, yo, I wanna be fly, 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 floating through the sky like a dream. When they say I can't fly, 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 I'ma smile and show them my wings, leapfrog through the clouds. Never been in with the crowd, so proud to be myself. Yes, I gotta do me, get out, hit the streets, spread love, cause the world really needs some help, yo. I don't need a witness, don't need your forgiveness, forgiving my heart so you can rip it apart. It'll still be strong, even when I'm not home. I'm connected. To love, and if you think that it's wrong, I don't want to be right, bruh. I'm taking a flight, bruh, above negativity and bad advice. Well, let's get into that then, because pursuit of life, liberty, and well, the Declaration of Independence, I can't say it right, is, is basically what you're calling out in lie one the fact that. You know, America's a Christian nation. I mean, you'll see it. You'll see it tonight, depending on who wins in whatever the states. You know, Franklin Graham or Pat Robertson's will come out, or the you know Jerry Falwell right. Jr. will come out and. Right. Why is that a lie? Why are we not a And I do want, let me let me let me posture this way. I'm going to take the stance that you're wrong. So you tell me why you tell me why it's a yeah, lie. That, that's fine. I don't um, want us to agree with each other all night. <laughs> so why are, why am I not part of a Christian nation? Or why is America yeah. not one? Yeah, so I think the the most common argument is to say, well, look at how much sin we've committed as a as a quote-unquote nation, right? But I actually think that the where it came alive for me is actually at the end of the Gospel of Matthew and the beginning of the book of Acts, when Peter in, is repeatedly looking for a political solution to an existential crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Repeatedly looking for like the, the overthrow of the Roman government so that like God's kingdom can come as God and God is actually about something very different. Um, so yes, the United States is not a Christian nation because look at the, the, there's nothing in line with the formation of this nation that would reflect the kingdom of God. But I think the real answer lies in the great commission where we're to go for it um, and make disciples, cast out demons, heal the sick and baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, making disciples of all people. And when that comes, that solution, his kingdom is not a country. So, yes, sin, all that stuff, but the rule and reign of Jesus does not look like a democracy. It does not look like a military. It does not look like a, a physical state that we can all live in and claim citizenship because of our race, class, or where we were born. Like, it's an invitation into the grace of God and is 
is um, limitless in, in its locale, right? So I think the book of Acts actually is the best apologetic for why the United States is not a Christian, because that's not actually how God set up his kingdom at all. Right. Should we, should we strive to be a Christian nation? Like, should that be something that we aspire to? Um, I think that to reflect the kingdom of God as best as we possibly can, um, so that we can point to the risen Savior as King, I think absolutely we should do that. I don't think, though, that our goal or intention should be to legislate a morality or um, by by deterrent put people into heaven because it just doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, it'd be nice, but it. <laughs> doesn't work like that. Right. We, the, the Jesuits tried that with native people. It, it didn't go over so well. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, yeah, there's a chapter in your book and I don't know which lie it was, atta- or which chapter, which lie it was attached to, but you were talking about, um, the guy that started the, the Carlisle, um, the Carlisle kill, schools. Kill the Indian, save the man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And I spoke about that a bit with Mark Charles and he was talking a bit about that. Yeah, um, he, whew, Mark his, Charles. His knowledge is is something else. Um, right. That's life three, the melting pot. Yeah. yeah. Well, so the question, the next question that would logically flow is um, specifically because right now a caravan is on its way. And by the time that this episode airs, it will have already come and everybody will have already continued to bicker. But that won't stop the next time that people come yep. for asylum. And so like today, you know, you'll hear people saying, well, we should accept immigrants because we're all immigrants. And we should, you know, you or you'll hear people say, well, yeah, but Mexico offered them asylum, so they should just stop there, to which I'd ask, well, then if it's good enough for Mexico, how come we're not I thought we were exceptional. Like we're going to let Mexico do this better than we do. But either way, n- neither one of those are good arguments. And so People always say America was founded as a country of immigrants and we're, you know, we're this amalgam of whatever it is, and that's what binds us together. But you say in your book, and I hope it's fine for me to quote it, um, that when we do that, when we say that we're all immigrants, that it is an edited retelling of a narrative in a way that affirms the powerful and assimilates the powerless into a lower position in the power structure. And then you say, for example, Christian boarding schools trying to crush out native identities and that Mm -hmm. this was done by physically and culturally separating native children from their elders and basically just breaking them away from any and all culture. And so what are you trying to say there? Because I hear you saying, uh, you know, you can't say you're an immigrant and then strip someone of whatever makes them one. Yes. So I think, I think what, if we go back a little bit, when we say we're all immigrants, I think what we're actually trying to do is avoid the idea that anyone is oppressed and anyone is the oppressor. So if we're all immigrants, we're all invited to become this new place. And that goes all the way back to when Europeans, the, the missionaries, the military and the merchants all came to America and how they saw this land. Mm-hmm. They some of them saw this land as a place where um, they could live out a pure Europe. We've messed up in Europe. We get to start over, right? That was one group of people. And other people saw it as God's promised land where we could actually um, become the people of God mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, um, the Jesuits or the Puritans or pick that group of people 
where what was actually happening though was they were trying to remake the land of America and its people that they discovered in the image of Europe, which yeah. literally takes on, you know, it's a, you know, a, a twisting of Genesis 127, where instead of encountering people who are made in the image of God, they tried to remake the people in the image of Europe, right? Yeah. And so we see that when we say we're all immigrants, like the woman next door to me, she's Czechoslovakian and Polish. Her ancestors, when they came to America, what happened was her name was changed, right? If I change your name, I disconnect you from your lineage. You can't find your people anymore. So now you're an American. When, mm -hmm. when a Chinese student comes to the United States and they say, well, no, like I'm not going to learn your name. Your name is now Peggy or your name is pick the thing. Like mm -hmm. the, my daughter is Chinese. And so when I look at her name, I can actually connect her to every generation before her because of a hundred line Chinese poem that each generation has. But if I cut that off and say we're all immigrants and I'm actually disconnecting you from where you come from. So I think what happens in the language is that one, the suggestion that we're all immigrants assumes that we all came here voluntarily mm -hmm. as opposed to like my people as slaves or some people as those who have been religiously persecuted or some natives or um, those from Mexico who the border simply shifted over them and they became American, right. right? And so there's, I think what happens is when we say we're all immigrants, what we're doing is trying to dismiss the fact that we have have been oppressed because honestly, we don't want to talk about it. Like my mom didn't want to talk about how her birth certificate said Negro, mm -hmm. right? Like we don't, like my grandmother-in-law and I talk about this in the book, she does not want to talk about like what burning flesh sat smells like and sounds like. We don't want to tell those stories, right? Yeah. And so it's a beautiful lie and a wonderful invitation to say, don't worry about that. We're all the same. We can all work at this thing together. Yeah. yeah I really, really enticing. Yeah. To say, I've got a shot. Let's go do it. Do you think, and this isn't a fair question. Um, do you think if, if say, like people like your grandma or your mom had been willing to say, no, sit down, Jonathan, I need to tell you something. This is going gonna, gonna to piss you off and it's going to change your life. And maybe if they did that either in a family setting or in a public setting, that our religion, our faith, our country would be different now had they done that 50 years ago and, and dealt with that pain and strife. Or was that just not possible then for them to even have the freedom's a bad word, the liberty to be able to do that? Well, so I think the conversation happens when our safety is, is in question. So I had that conversation with my mom, but only when she thought I might get shot or she mm. thought I might get killed or she thought I might end up in a compromising situation. So I remember distinctly, uh, I mean, the KKK is all through Southern Virginia, right? So um, I distinctly remember my mom um, handing my book to someone and then being like, well, I don't, I don't want to read that. This one? No, not that one. My book of poetry. Book of yeah, poetry. Um, and it was really interesting to me to see who was supportive of the stuff that I was writing and who wasn't. Hmm. And who wanted to know what I was writing and who didn't. Um, and specifically, there was someone who had a clan background. Um, and he, um, his wife um, did not want him to know that she was reading what I was writing. 
Mm. Um, and so I think, and my mom told me, she was Jonathan, this is what you need to know about this family, X, Y, Z. Right. So I think it happens in my family that we need to be safe. Um, and similar to the talk that most black people get about police and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think it happens when safety is in question, but I don't think that it can happen when, if you were talking about if we had this conversation 50 years ago and things like that, I think those conversations were happening. I think what people did not opt to do, though, particularly people in power, was to decolonize their own way of life. So it really doesn't matter how it's talked about if people are not willing to give up the stuff that comes with the opportunity structures that are set up for them. And so when you say decolonize, what is that defining? Outside of like a Black Panther movie, which is what's made that in vogue word, like what does that even mean to decolonize something? Yes. So me, like as a a black male in the United States, able-bodied, cisgendered, all that stuff, right? Like I, there are places that I can step out of the race, class, gender-based hierarchy that I'm invited into to actually reflect the kingdom of God in ways that are transformative and helpful. Mm -hmm. So an example of that is um, I know that as a man, people are going to listen to me when I say specific things about gender. And so instead of me making a comment about Me Too and the oppression of against women and patriarchy, I will suggest 10 female speakers and books instead of you getting my opinion. Right. You should just ask the people who Jim Crow for women has been set up for. Right. Um, so I will limit my platform. So basically the idea out of Philippians chapter two, where I will disadvantage myself, right? So that the community might be lifted up. So I will openly talk about my past of exploiting women, openly talk about my lust for money, openly talk about um, as best as I can, like the ways that I have used the opportunity structures that have helped me to lift myself up and that by definition subjugates other people yeah and so now i will like say okay i'm going to intentionally make sure women are teaching in this place intentionally make sure i'm making time for folks who are disabled in my life slow down so that i can actually have conversations with people who are homeless like i'm not going to participate as best as i can by the grace of god in the power structures that subjugate and denigrate people who are made in his image even though i benefit from those systems and structures in in honor of election day, <laughs> your lie number five is that we are a great democracy. Right, right. I actually hadn't planned on this being one of my lies, but it's election day, and so it has yeah. to be. I did take a few notes on it. Specifically, I like your lever. So you've got four levers. Like there's a lever of, well, I feel like anyone that actually does any civics classes or any um, government classes knows that we're not really a democracy. We'll say that we are, and then you ask an actual person that went to high school and paid attention. Even that hasn't been filtered out of books yet. We're not a democracy. And I don't think people want us to be a democracy. And if you don't believe me, just jump into Facebook and say Taco Bell sucks and see what happens. Like, it doesn't even matter what you say. Just see what, you don't want to be a democracy. But Mm. why do you think that we think that we are? I I think that we think that we are. And each of the lies builds upon each other, right? So if we say that we're a Christian nation, then we define the faith of the country, the Mm. idea. 
then what happens is with an immigrant and if we're all immigrants and we're a melting pot, then you're defining how we interact with each other, right? And then if you define equality, right? Because we're all equal. Okay, let me put all man. Well, like this is how, this is the faith that I believe in. This is who God is and this is how he made me and what he made me to do. And this is how we are to see each other. Oh, how do I have access to power we're a democracy so we need the illusion of inclusion to continue to live out the faith that we're supposedly called into. and so if i believe that i have power then i won't fight Mm. i won't rebel Mm. if i believe that like my my vote counts my voice counts that my efforts were going to do something like if people actually understood that the, the meritocracy wasn't real and that votes actually didn't matter in the ways that we think they do, then people would fight. But we've created... Do you think that your vote doesn't matter? I think it depends. Okay, well, so so today, do you think that your vote (laughs) doesn't matter today? Um, and, And just know, I don't... I'm, I'm a, so I spoke about this with my brother today. We talked about Beto Rourke and Ted Cruz because he still lives in Texas. And he was like, well, why wouldn't you vote for Ted Cruz? I was like, well, regardless of his politics, the dude in his career shows up less than 60% of the time to even right. vote. And so if I'm telling him that he's supposed to represent the state of Texas and he never actually physically shows up to do his job, you're doing a bad right. job. I don't even care what your politics are. Like you literally right. aren't, you're, you're not even mailing it in. You're just yeah. not going to work. I would get fired. Yeah. Like if I didn't go to work at my bank, like, or if you didn't go to work as a director for IVP, like you would get fired. Uh, exactly and he's like, right. well, I, I hadn't thought about that. And I was like, yeah, I mean, regardless right. of your politics. Right. Yeah. But yeah. I, I don't know. So do you feel like if you voted and, and I don't see your sticker, but I'm assuming that you did. Cause yeah. Did do it, you yes. feel like it counts or do you feel like it only counts in, in a way that you're able to now have a voice in the conversation? Well, let's, well, let's break, let's break all that down. Right. So I think it's helpful to think personally, relationally and systemically. Mm -hmm. So personally, personally does not vote matter. I think as a follower of Jesus, I want to be intentional about the power that I yield and the power structures in this world. Um, I want to be conscious of the witness that I am bearing to people who are undocumented in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, people that are disabled like pick the people who are downstream of oppression and violence i want to say hey i'm i'm taking the power that i have to try and advocate for you in a way that i hope is honoring and empowering in a way that god intended so personally and relationally yes i think it matters systemically um i live in new york um the the state that i live in leans heavily liberal Mm -hmm. So the way that my vote matters systemically is dampered by the population that I'm a part of. Right. Um, so personally and relationally, I think my vote is significant because of what it means to me and what it means to my faith and the witness that I'm pressing for in the world. Systemically, I'm not sure it matters because I actually do not get to define that meaning in the system as it is, as it's set up. Yeah, that's fair particularly because of what you just said. I may vote for someone and not know their actual political agenda, and they're not actually interested in showing up to vote on the laws that I think are important. Right. So they don't actually, they signed up to be my representative, but they're not actually representing my interests because they're, they have their own interests in mind. Right. So, Jonathan, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and it's a two-part question, and it, and it may be the same answer. It may not be. Of the yeah. 12 that you wrote, which was the hardest one for you to, to come to grips with? Oh. Or is yeah. there a 13th that you're like, oh, man, I can't put that in the book. I can't. Or, or I, I don't feel comfortable putting that in. But I, I would like to know both of those answers. Yeah, so all of them were hard. Mm-hmm. They're all hard. Um, I think the hardest one was the ah man. Okay, I'm, I, this is not this is not one that's hard, but there were things that were hard in many of them, and I'll try to name them because it's just too hard. So <laughs> the one the the I, my I do not have a great relationship with my dad. Mm-hmm. All of the significant interactions I've had with my father have been post my mom dying. So in the last three years, I, the, the chapter that I wrote about bravery um, and the association of bravery with violence and trying to get into the mindset of my father in the 1950s and 60s and his struggle for identity coupled with my own like brief consideration of like, I want to fight sex trafficking and slavery. What if I went to the Marine Corps? What if I went to the FBI? Like there's something about being seen as respected and being seen as brave and being seen in this way. And so I think that was really hard putting myself in his, in his, in his skin. Um, to try mm-hmm. to answer that. Um, just as a, as a son who doesn't have a close relationship with his father, but, is trying to do what I believe Jesus has called me to do and honoring him in that way. I think writing the last chapter about my mom and what did it mean for her to go to glory and get what she did not have on this side of heaven is also really difficult because I think when we talk about the hope that we have in Jesus, again, going back before we don't talk about the hopelessness that exists in the world and Jesus is and what like revelation 21 is like um, powerful for me because if I think about the suffering that my mom experienced as a elementary school middle school kid going into a formerly segregated school and entering into that like she lived in a world that was not designed for her Mm -hmm. Um, but she served a God who said that he promised a place for her. And, but the only way for her to get to that place was to pass through this life. Right. And so thinking about that and the promises of that was, was also hard. And I think with thinking about the first, the first, uh, we are all immigrants and we are all, we are melting pot was difficult because I had to reconcile what it would mean for my daughter to read this as a woman who will carry the blood of colonists and the colonized and native people and Chinese people and Korean people in her at one time. Mm-hmm. What does that, what does that look like? What's she being invited into when she will speak Spanish and English and Chinese or Mandarin, right? Like what, what does it mean for her to be? Can your daughter speak all those now or is she learning all those now? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. So, but that, that's our, that's our context, right? Like yeah. living in Jackson Heights and I want her to be able to communicate with everyone who mm-hmm. looks like her. Right. Yeah. Um, so 
in her family, obviously. Yeah, I would say she knows about, you know, more Chinese than I do and less Spanish than I do. And, like, it's great to, to, to try to go back and forth with her and all the different things. If I'm not called to be a part of white America folk religion and I'm not called or or if, or if people of color are not called to be part of, uh, let's call it Korea-American folk religion or Black exactly, American right. folk religion or Native yes. American folk I don't really care what word you put in front of American. What are we called to be as the church? Like, what does yeah. that look like? Like, what is that Yo, called? So I think, again, there's a, there's a personal relation on a systemic <laughs> response. Um, and systemically, I mean, man, if we could look like the bride of Christ, intimate with him, like redeemed and transformed and embody the faithful witness that happened in Acts 2 and Acts 4, mm-hmm. that's what I think we're actually called to, where we don't live revolutionary lives, but we live subversive lives that are actually out of Romans 12, where we are able to be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind and then pursue the gifts that he has for us promised in, in Galatians and Corinthians where we're able to hear from him and respond. Like he says, we will be able to um, test and know what his perfect will is. Like he says, we can do that. Mm-hmm. Right. And then reflect that. And so systemically, I think we're actually called to be an intimate relationship with the father and live out of that love, the two greatest commandments while living out the great commission. Like systemically, all of us are called to be his children to bear faithful witness to him. Right. That's, big picture yeah relationally i think that looks like us entering in covenant relationship a promised community with believers around us sometimes that might look like a house church underground church in china sometimes that might look like a church in the suburbs in new york city mm-hmm. or whatever it is but like i think we are to be in committed relationship with believers and responding in ways together and individually that are transformative for those around us because of who Jesus is. Yeah. I think personally what we actually need to do, and I talk about this at the end of the book, is look at the book of Acts, particularly Acts 1 through 7, and take notes of what the disciples did. And then say, does my Christianity look like this? If it doesn't, how can it begin to look like this? When was the last time I baptized somebody? Now, I know folks might get upset, right? <laughs> but when was the last time I baptized somebody? Right. When was the last time I cast demons out of somebody? When was the last time I prayed for healing for someone? When was the last time I testified at work to the goodness of God? When was the last time? Like, if we're not doing those things, what are, what are we doing? Right. Right? And so I think I, I like to say if we ran our personal lives and our small groups or beta groups or life groups or cell groups, whatever you want to call them, through an axe filter, would we come out looking like followers of Jesus from the scriptures? Yeah. And if we're not, then we might want to reconsider the kind of trees that we are so that we might bear fruit. Yeah. No, that's good. And I like that imagery of reconsider what kind of trees we are based on the fruit that's there. So you end, or you you don't end, you begin Lie 12 with a poem. And so if you're willing, I know we talked about this a bit before. Yeah. If you're willing to roll through that. So before we do this, um, where can people get the book, engage with you, interact with you on social media and or online or email or snail mail or whatever the mail? (laughs) Well, 
the website um, is ived.life. So that's like all of our discipleship stuff. People are welcome to come to our programs in New York. People are welcome to grab live stream, come to events, all that stuff. Um, 12livesbook.com will be where all the book stuff is. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Forever Focused. Um, but if you want to get the book by Christmas, which would be great, um, or if you're listening to this post-Christmas, that's fine. But get it off of IV Press or on Amazon. Cool. Yeah, and also you can listen to the audio book because I do perform poetry in the book quite a bit. So, nice. Um, you can get that on Audible or all that good stuff too. Nice. Fantastic. Yeah, man. My skin speaks volumes my mouth may never say, sends messages my mind may never know, writes pages of pen in my palm never wrote my skin brown but called black whip cracks my mental back my head aches from self-hate that i want to go away my skin says i may have struggled but my grandmama definitely did some white man somewhere had an illegitimate kid my cousins passed with green eyes and light skin but my granddaddy dark walked up to doors and couldn't get in he wanted to buy land in southern virginia but couldn't because of my skin for some of us, it's a source of pride. For me, I find it hard to stay unashamed as I'm asked, are you Ghanaian, Dominican, or Haitian? And my response is disrespect my ancestors when I say I'm just black. Uttered from under a cloud of adversity, whispered from behind a shadow of struggle, I'm just black. I want to say it with more something, but all I hear are Asian parents telling Asian daughters not to date me, older generations finding inclinations not to hate me. They say, once you go black, you never go back, but that's only half the fact, because once you go black, you never go back, because some white men won't let you. I think black, and I think pain, and I want so bad for my thoughts to change, but a world where I'm equal is just a dream. Dreamt by a minority, ruled by an indifferent majority, leaving me somewhere between radical Afrocentrism and or racial indifference with no ethnic identity at all. Society won't let me remember the Nat Turner's or the Nat King Cole because I might find my pride, grab my axe, and hack out a path to justice, all while singing, we shall overcome. I must recall the slave in me so I can fight for those minds that aren't yet free. Free to hope, free to dream. Yes, we can is the song that we sing, and I'll keep singing until the world is singing with me. They don't want me to remember the Martins and the Malcolms because minds like mine start movements, bunch. Banneker, Carver, Powell, Douglas, Marshall, Ali, Angela, Kersey, Washington, Wheatley, Lewis, Walker, they are all within me. And I must remember Vico, Mandela, Aquiano, Tubman, Truth. I must remember the truth that we must be measured by much more than our levels of melanin. And our children won't know our history unless we continue to tell them that the greatest race is a human race. And we must flock with runners like Lenin, Locke, Gandhi, Tutu, Mead, living in one world in one great country because we too sing America. We are dark, light, black, yellow, brown, and white, all fighting for the amnesty of the mind. They send us to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but we laugh and eat well and grow strong tomorrow. We'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to us, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful we are and be ashamed. We too are America. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for doing that. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. No problem. It's a new year. I found forgiveness from old tears. And I'm expecting no one I'm getting there 
gonna be some fun. I'm learning, learned a lot, and I plan to learn, learn again. Turn a friend. I hope that you're challenged. Both to do something, both to raise your voice, and and if you don't know what that voice is, to find your voice. Dig into the content that Jonathan and I talked about. Figure out which lie speaks to you and wrestle with it. And then once you understand at least the history behind what's happening, do something with it. But be careful. I find myself often coming from a position of, I know more than someone on a specific topic and that somehow that makes me better than them. And to be honest, I'm not. I never have been, nor was I ever. And so I think something that I'm going to wrestle with this year is, is talking with people as opposed to talking at people and finding a shared common ground where we can learn together in love. And I know this book has helped me do that quite a bit uh, as I've come into conversation with people daily. If you have not yet, you need to go to patreon.com slash can I say this at church and support this show. Big plans for this year. I would love to take some time, bring some guests to me, or either I go to guests. I'd love to do some live meetings and events with some of you. All of that requires funds. I can promise you right now, every dollar that you donate in support of this show goes directly back to the show. I'm not buying Starbucks coffees with this. As a matter of fact, you can actually support the show for less than a really bad cup of Starbucks coffee a few times a year. And so I hope that you'll do that. Patreon.com slash can I say this at church. Today's music was from artist Royce Lovett. And I love his stuff. He's got some really good YouTube mixes. If you'll go uh, into the show notes and, and click down on that. And, and check some of those out. They're really good. Addictive, even. And today's tracks, like every other episode, will be featured on the Spotify playlist called Can I Say This at Church, which is a fantastic playlist. If you haven't yet heard it, go back through it. It's it's fun for me to go back and hear how many memories get popped back up. So I'm grateful for each and every one of you listening. I'm grateful when you tell other people about the show. I'm extremely grateful for those of you that have supported the show in any way, shape, or form. I look forward to talking with you next week. It's going to be fun as it has been. Be blessed, everybody. Stop. I want to fly again. I want the sky again. I want to try again. When do we ever stop?
when did we ever 